dangerously close. My guest today is Edward Ashton. Edward Ashton is the author of the novels Mickey Seven, Three Days in April, and The End of Ordinary. And also, uh, most recently, Antimatter Blues, but you have to be super special like me to have read it yet because it's not it's not available yet, but coming very soon. So, uh, but take it from me, it's awesome. His short fiction has appeared in venues ranging from the newsletter of an Italian sausage company to escape pod analog and fireside fiction. He lives in upstate New York in a cabin in the woods with his wife, a variable number of daughters, and an adorably mopey dog named Max, where he writes mostly fiction, occasionally fact under the watchful eyes of a giant woodpecker and a rotating cast of barred owls. In his free time, he enjoys cancer research, teaching quantum physics to sullen graduate students, and whittling. What's up, Edward? Hey, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. I appreciate it. That's quite a bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, w- I wish I had written it. Someone uh, someone a while ago described it as delightfully quirky. So, you know what, I'll, I'll own that. That is a fantastic description of it. <laughs> hey, do you mind if uh, do you mind if I share a, just a really quick anecdote of, no, please. of, of how I first discovered your books? Just because it's kind of... I feel like, you know, fate has brought us here finally to this podcast interview. Uh, so <clears throat> I I became aware of you very, like, pretty recently. It was, uh, I guess, November. It was during uh, the midterm elections. And I vote at a library. And uh, I, was, I, I wasn't in a super great mood about, like, because where I live, my vote virtually does not have any value other than, like, I'm symbolically making my voice heard but so I, I was kind of a, in a grumpy mood uh and just kind of looking around the library apparently one of the library librarians was a big fan of you already and had put your book mickey seven on display it has a great cover i was drawn to it and i was like well this looks cool i mean i was like maybe i'll just read this in this long ass line <laughs> so i picked it up and history uh was made because i couldn't put it down man i just like i was like this book is awesome i read it all the way through i took it into you know go uh vote on some weirdly worded bills and kept it and now i've read the sequel and uh anyway man i just that's a <laughs> that's the story of how i first discovered Mickey seven <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad you uh glad you happened to notice it i'm glad it caught your eye yeah and uh shout out the librarian who uh put it on display they have great Absolutely. taste. Also, uh, before we get uh, really into the interview, man, I have to say a huge congratulations. I was unaware of this until very recently, like maybe two weeks ago. I just found out that your book, Mickey Seven, is going to be a major motion picture directed by Bong Joon-ho. Uh, I saw on the cast, you've got Robert Pattinson, Mark Ruffalo. So that's uh, that's like the Incredible Hulk and Batman in one movie. Yeah, that's, yeah, they're, they're not fooling around. <laughs> It's a lot of a lot of star power, man. Are you uh, are you stoked on the film? Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. I I was able to travel to London uh, to watch some of the filming back in September. Oh, cool! Uh, it, it was really mad. I'd, I'd never been on a movie set before. This is all pretty new to me. Um, and they, you know, they took me on a tour around. I was able to watch about eight hours of the filming. I was able to tour the lot, see a lot of the um, sets that they had built, and and special effects, and and 
it, it was really it was really educational for me. I'm an engineer. I like to know how things work. And yeah. it's really interesting to me to see how people do their jobs and how people work. It was amazing watching director Bong work. Oh, yeah. Apparently he's, he's one of the most meticulous directors in, in the world. Um, you know, they, they were shooting one particular, maybe 20 second sequence. And they spent over an hour reshooting this over and over again with director Bong giving these just incredibly subtle directions to the, to the actor to just sort of move your hand a little here, drop your elbow a little. Uh, and his producer was explaining to me that he treats every frame of his films like a painting and he wants each one to be visually composed in a specific way. Uh, as a result, he shoots hundreds of hours of film for every hour that makes it onto the screen. Um, but you know, the, the, the results speak for themselves. And in, in my opinion, the man's never made a bad film. I, I, uh, I, I'm very confident that this is not going to be his first one. Uh, one of my career objectives now is to not be the man who ruined Bong Joon-ho's career. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that's not going to occur. So, oh, I guess uh, for anyone listening who's not uh, immediately familiar with Bong Joon-ho, uh, he's the director of Parasite, Snowpiercer, um, The Host, uh, many, so many great films. So, yeah. Oh, oh just one of my personal favorites. Yeah, he, he just... Well, I... I, it's funny that you were like, I hope that I'm not the man that ruins Bong Joon-ho's career. I find that to be impossible. This this story is fantastic. It, it definitely lends itself uh, to film. I mean, that's actually partly how I found out that the movie was getting made is I had suggested uh, some people were, were asking me like, hey, what are some books I should buy people for Christmas gifts? And I was suggesting your book, as a matter of fact. And that is how uh, this the fact that it's a movie came to uh, into my sphere of knowledge. I mean, I don't want to like go on and on about the movie too long, but uh, I guess like this is all knowledge people could find on the internet if they wanted to. So it's not really spoilers. Robert Pattinson is going to be Mickey Seven. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that that's correct. All right, that's pretty cool. That's a that's a cool casting choice. At first, I was like, hmm, and then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I can see him pulling this off uh, really, really well. I, I had to think about that for a minute because. Um, they had me sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I, I actually worked for the CIA at one point. Oh, wow. And the security requirements that I had there were nothing compared to this. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, it, basically, if I disclose any information that's not public, um, they have the right to come to my house and murder me, essentially. Wow. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I got to be very careful about anything that I say. But the, yeah, that is, uh, that's 100% public already. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I, I was worried about asking, but then I was like, I'm sure at this point. Also, when they tied when they tied his name to it, who else could he be? <laughs> yeah. Now there, there there have been tons of reports in the in the media about about him and about uh, Ruffalo, Naomi Aki, and some of the other actors um, that that are in the film. And uh, not to go just on a tangent here, but this uh, this is Brad Pitt's production company. Is that correct? Am I Plan B Production? Yeah. Okay. Yep. The only reason I found that interesting is just something that I had read a long time ago by um, it was uh, something that Chuck Palahniuk, Chuck Palahniuk, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, the author of Fight Club. Yeah, it's something he had, it's it was nonfiction that he had written. And he was talking about what it was like having that book that was kind of his, you know, that was his baby. And, you know, he had to hand it over to David Fincher and Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. <clears throat> And he said that he was on set and Edward Norton was already doing like first day rewrites of the script, which is, I think, 
a very common, I've heard that he's kind of hard to work with because of that kind of stuff. And uh, I remember uh, Chuck Palahniuk writing that that was like very difficult for him, like watching his story and his book and his creation being kind of taken and become, you know, becoming something that belongs to other people because they're creating a new uh, form of art with it. I only bring that up to just ask, you know, do you have any of those kind of feelings or reservations? I mean, first of all, uh, you know, different authors feel differently about the, I am not a delicate artist. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I try to, to be entertaining and to entertain people. I don't feel that I'm writing things to change the world or that I'm producing something that'll be remembered 500 years from now or something like that. I, I just, I don't see myself in that way. Yeah. Um, also, if a different person were handling things on the other end, I might be more nervous. You know, I mean, I, I think about things like, um, I don't know if you're, I'm extremely old. So I remember a movie called The Running Man. Do you, did you ever? With Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a gigantic Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. Well, that it's was like... a terrible movie. I, I hope I'm not offending you by saying that was an absolute oh, terrible uh, movie. I would, I'm actually willing to bet that's one of the only ones of his I haven't seen. Yeah, well, you're not missing anything. It was based on a really good book, and the yeah. script just had nothing to do with the book. They just completely butchered it. Yeah. Um, so if, if somebody not Bong Joon-ho were handling it, I might be afraid of something like that happening. But I, I, when, when he first became involved, I had about a two-hour Zoom call with, with Director Bong, and we talked through everything that he wanted to do. And I mean, I, I knew right at that moment that he was the right person to do this. He was the perfect person to do this. Uh, and I have absolute confidence that what he comes out with is going to be um, not true to the details of the book because, you know, film is a different thing. The film has to be more kinetic than a yeah. book. It has to be less thinky. That's just the way the medium works. But it's going to be true to the spirit. Um, and it, it's going to bring new stuff to the story that I didn't or couldn't put in there. Um, that that's going to enrich the the universe of of sort of the story that I created. So I, I have no concerns or fears whatsoever along those lines. And not to get out of line, and I I I know like just a couple minutes ago, I literally said I wasn't going to keep going on in the movie, but just because only because we brought up Mark Ruffalo, he's a fantastic actor. I really really like him a lot. He's been in so much great great stuff. I just want to ask because of his age, um, I'm curious: is he Marshall? Is he the is he going to be the, uh, the that is something that I can neither confirm nor deny. Okay. I, was, <laughs> I knew, I knew I shouldn't ask that question, but I just, <laughs> it, it's, it's the same. It's the same way with, um, you know, with, with the stuff that I had with the government. Um, yeah. it's not that, um, if I told you I'd have to kill you, it's if I told you they'd kill me yeah. and me, that's <laughs> much more concerning. So yeah, yeah. That, that, that's something I can't talk about. Uh, my curiosity can wait. I'll, I'll wait until the film comes out. Yeah. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be there straight up on uh, opening day. As a matter well, of fact, I expect you'll start seeing trailers in the next few months, and it should be pretty clear at that point. I mean, they've already re released the first teaser. I don't know if you saw that one floating around. I have not. No, it, it, this uh, just came to my attention. I was just like, yeah. You know, they wrapped. They wrapped filming in December, um, so they're oh, in production. Wow. Um, and yeah, the, the first teaser was released uh, about a month ago. Um, so it's pretty cool. You should check it out if you get a chance. It will be the first thing. I, as, as soon as I'm done speaking with you, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to watch the trailer. <laughs> yeah. uh, so just kind of taking a little like a, a little turn here onto other stuff. Uh, so you do you do cancer research. You teach quantum physics. 
you worked for the CIA, you write novels that get movie deals. I guess really my main question is, well, you think you're better than me? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the luckiest person on the planet Earth is what I think. I, I have, you know, I've, I've, I've had people ask me sort of like, how did you do all that? You know, what was your plan to get to where you are now? I never had a plan. I'm like, I, I've drifted through life like a jellyfish. I just like, I eat whatever drifts into my tentacles and that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> things have worked out for me in ways that are incredibly improbable. I mean, the idea that this book, I mean, the, the movie deal, the option agreement was signed before I even had a publisher for this book. Wow. You know, I mean, ordinarily that is not how things work. Ordinarily, like a book becomes a bestseller and then it gets picked up to be, a movie um this one exactly the opposite direction how that happens my only explanation is that my agent is some sort of wizard or something i i, yeah. I have no idea how he managed to pull this off oh my god I, it's just it's all it's all been <laughs> a series of very improbable random events that have all seemed to work out in my favor for some reason that's fantastic you know, that's true i have never in my life heard of catching a movie deal off your book that you haven't written I, I, <laughs> that's I, a lot. Of, that's a lot of faith for that movie yeah. studio to have in you, yeah, <laughs> and the publisher, and I mean, and everyone. So, wow. Uh, obviously, you can't speak on uh, CIA, which is fine. <laughs> but uh, some of that, some of that stuff, I can. And I bet I, this was twenty years ago, more than twenty years ago. So, okay, uh, yeah, so I, I can talk are, about a few things. Not a, not 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 any of the classified stuff. These are, you know, these aren't necessarily. You're not in these ops still. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, no but I, no, uh, but I'm curious. Like, just I mean, you do very kind of like just uh, I don't want to say flippantly, but you kind of just breeze over in your bio there that like that you are doing cancer research as well as uh, teaching quantum physics. Uh, which which one of those things is kind of the main thing? Or I mean, like, pro professionally, I that's my day. I'm a cancer researcher. That's my that's my day job. Okay. Um, I, I I run. Um, I run clinical trials for various drugs and um, ev evaluate the results, basically. Okay, cool. The, the then, quantum physics thing is is like, that's something I do as a favor to my old PhD advisor. Um, he teaches a class that has a section that involves quantum physics, which he's not entirely comfortable with. So I, I come in every semester and teach teach that section for him. Okay, hell yeah. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a, it's not a professional thing. I'm not a professor. Oh, okay. So yeah, okay. Cool. You're just yeah, that's uh that's just something I do for fun. You just just for fun know quantum physics and can explain it to other people at a at a graduate level. Okay. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. That's 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 one way to put it. Yeah. Starting to get to, get to know you a little better. So actually where I did want to start with my with a with a real question is uh the ship of Theseus. The ship of Theseus is a it's a it's a philosophical cornerstone in Mickey Seven, basically. And as well as Antimatter Blues, the sequel to uh, Mickey Seven that I just read. Uh, the Ship of Theseus, is it's a Greek myth as well as a thought experiment. And I'm extremely curious to know, uh, you know, which resolution to the question you more closely adhere to. I know there's like several resolutions that have been put out there by people like even Noam Chomsky has a big one, I think. And um, but I'm sure most listeners aren't going to immediately recall the story. So uh can can you share the story of the ship of Theseus real quick before we get into it? Would that be sure. Fine? So the the ship of Theseus is a it's a philosophical question that that was first originated by Plutarch, the the, the Greek philosopher, 
Um, so more than 2000 years ago. And he, he, the way he formulated originally is imagine that Theseus, the Greek hero, um, he's sailing around the world and it's a long journey. And as he goes, his ship uh, breaks, parts of it break down, a board, a board breaks, a line snaps, a sail has to be replaced. By the time he comes back years later, every single line, every single board, every single nail has been replaced. Is it the same ship or is it a completely new ship? That's, that's the question. And this obviously is a, a very tight analogy for a human life. Yeah. Um, and, and this is something that is informed a little bit by my biological research. Um, so you, you're probably aware that right now, you know, you sitting here, there's not a single cell in your body that was part of your body 10 years ago, right? You, you, your, your entire corpus has completely turned over in the last 10 years. You are literally but a completely different organism now. I'm going to sound I'm I, I'm actually way out of like my uh, area of of knowledge. But is that that does that apply to brain cells? Uh, brain cells turn over much more slowly. Yeah, much more slowly than other brain cells. Neur neurons reproduce very, very slowly. Um, you know, it, your, your gut, the lining of your gut turns over every few days. Um, yeah, that that happens really, really quickly. Um, brain cells are the slowest brains and, and bone cells turn over pretty slowly too. But point is your entire body gets, gets replaced on a, a sort of a, a periodic basis. And the question is, does that mean that you are a different person or the same person? And a really interesting way to look at that is with a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is one of the things that I work with, mm -hmm. which is the technique that allows us to look at what parts of your brain are active when you're doing different things. So for instance, we use it for, for pain studies. You can put a patient in the, in the scanner and give them some pain stimulus and you can actually see their pain center light up. Um, and you can see how much it lights up, tells you how much pain they're experiencing. It's a really objective measure of pain. Um, we can have them move their little pinky finger and you can see exactly what part of their brain causes their little pinky finger to move. So one of the things that we can do with this is ask a patient in the scanner to think about something that they did yesterday or imagine something they're going to do tomorrow. And when they do that, there is one particular part of your brain that lights up. We can then ask them, now think about something that your sister did a while ago, or that your sister, imagine something your sister will do tomorrow. A completely different part of your brain lights up to do that. That's a different, that is a physically different structure within your brain. Now, what happens when we ask you to remember something 15 years ago? Which part of your brain do you think lights up at that point? Is it the same one as the, your sister? It's the other person. Yeah. It, so it, so it, you're imagining what someone else are, did. Yeah, okay. the window <laughs> is about 10 years. Um, if you try to imagine something that you're going to do 10, 15 years in the future, it's the other person part of your brain that does that work. If you remember something from your distant childhood, it's the other person part of your brain that does that work. That is why, from a psychological standpoint, things like anti-smoking ads that say you're going to get cancer when you're 60 have zero effect. They do nothing because yes. on a basic fundamental level, you know, that person, that 60 year old person is not going to be you. And you fundamentally, emotionally don't care what happens to them. Wow. Intellectually, you can think, oh yeah, that'll be me. And oh, maybe something bad will happen, but it doesn't connect. It doesn't connect on an emotional level because on some deep level, you know, that's not going to be you. And you know that that was not you 15 years ago on some very deep, very deep emotional level. And it's reflected in the architecture of your brain. That is incredible. <laughs>
I have never ever heard of that, of that research study ever in my life. Um, I mean, in a, in a moment, I do want to like apply that to like to Mickey Seven himself because that's that's a huge question with him, mm-hmm. which is you know which involves cloning, uh, also tech that we do not currently possess, which is being able to like scan a person's brain and download their entire uh, memories or, or virtually their mind or whatever. All of that is incredibly fascinating with the the biological standpoint and how humans think and how they think about themselves as a different person as long as it's far enough in the past or in the future. Uh, but I am just a little bit curious, just like for you personally, did you ever take the sh- the ship of Theseus question and kind of lean? Is is there like one of the proposed resolutions that someone's put out that you find to be the most agreeable one, or do you have a personal theory on it? Well, I mean. There's one thought that says that as long as you have the same memories, that's all that matters. And that the memories are the person and this collection of memories and experiences, that's what makes you. And so if we record that on a computer, so for instance, Ray Kurzweil at Google is Mm -hmm. very intent right now on developing exactly the technology you were just discussing, the ability to record a brain. He thinks that is a path to immortality for him personally. Um, and there are, there are a number of people in Silicon Valley who, who believe this. And then there's another line of thought that says there's something ineffable about me, about this sort of standing wave of electrical impulses that are going back and forth through the three pounds of meat in my head, that if you transferred all the memories, but you don't make a continuous transfer of that particular you know, set of standing waves of electrical impulses, that's not me anymore. Yeah. Like my point of view, we all imagine ourselves as like a, a person sitting behind our eyes, looking out and like driving the machine of our body. And you can have another body that acts and looks just like me. But if that little person isn't in there, it's not me. And actually I'm dead at that point. Yeah. I actually lean personally towards that, that point of view. Like if, you know, I, I talk sometimes about the, the transporter uh, problem from Star Trek. The transporter in Star Trek doesn't transport anybody. It dissolves you on one end and builds a new you on the other end. Yeah. New you over there (laughs) looks just like you and acts just like you. But as far as I'm concerned, like every time Captain Kirk gets on that transporter, he's dead. He's been killed. He's been just, you see him dissolve, right? Yeah. He's he's gone. Uh, And there's just a new copy of him floating around out there somewhere. And I, I tend to believe, you know, if I were in the Star Trek universe, I would never step on a transporter. You'd have to take me places on a shuttlecraft. Yeah, <laughs> I guess uh, <clears throat> there's one school of thought into this. And I wonder if this maybe like uh, aligns a little bit with what you're saying. And that's, you know, that we think in three dimensions. And if we were able to think, you know, four dimensionally, that maybe this question would not be so complicated, so complex or hard to wrap our minds around. Have you ever read the book uh, Slaughterhouse-Five? Yeah, of course. So sure. in, in that, I don't I'm not. I'm sure it's been a while. Maybe, or I don't know. Maybe you read it yesterday. But I uh, love Vonnegut. I am. <laughs> I am a huge Vonnegut fan. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally here for this discussion. Uh, well, in, in that uh, Billy Pilgrim becomes unstuck in time, and not to go too deep into it, but he meets this uh, alien race called the Tremalfadorians, and they explain to him that all time is so they see in four dimensions, and they see time as one it's like as a tableau, like there's one just giant thing that can't be changed in any way. There is no free will. All time is, it is what it is. So whatever, any bad thing that's happened, like when he was in world war two and the bombing of Dresden happened, 
that has always happened and it always will happen. Uh, and so the Tremalfadorians, the way they they live their lives is they only look at the the beautiful moments in time and they look away from the bad moments. <laughs> and life is more time is more to them is just a a still painting. Uh, I, and I know that was a bit of a tangent, but that is I've and I've had a hard time grasping some of these uh, more academic arguments on the ship of Theseus. But that one, maybe I feel like does that kind of go with it a little bit like thinking that if you can separate time and space and, you know, time is a flat circle that the ship of Theseus is and always will be itself. I mean, that's I, I'm not I'm not sure those two lines of thought 100 percent connect. Uh, I, I would make the point that um when you're talking about Vonnegut he actually experienced the firebombing of Dresden he was there as a prisoner of war um and it messed him up really bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> he uh he had a lot of psychological issues related to to his experience of World War II that he obviously he played out in his in his fiction over the years yeah um, but there's a reason he was so grim and cynical in, in pretty much everything that he wrote um but in in terms of in terms of the sort of span of time relating to our continuity of experience, um, I'm, I'm not sure you can really say, because if you take our experience out of time and give us sort of that Trafalmadorian perspective where we can see um, how everything began and how everything will wind up, that's no longer a human brain. That's no longer, yeah. you're fundamentally no longer recognizably us at that point. You're some other higher dimensional creature. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you want to look at someone who's thought about that a little more, I don't know if you ever read the Ophiuchi Hotline by, by John Varley. I have not. So he, he talks about there, there's an, an extraterrestrial race kind of like that, that steps outside of time. Um, and they consider all intelligence in life, in, in the universe, to sort of be tiered into three groups the first one is them uh and and creatures like them who were able to step out of time the next one below that is creatures who can perceive time um in that way but can't move through it and whales and dolphins fall into that category and then the last category the lowest category is what they call engineering species which is humans bees and ants who are all basically in the same category as far as they're concerned so if you move us up to their level, we're, we're not we're not ourselves anymore. We've, we've left the bees and the ants behind. Would you please uh, share the name of that book and author again? Because sure. I, need to, I need to know this. It's the Ophiuchi Hotline. Uh, and it's by John Varley, V-A-R-L-E-Y. John Varley. All right. That sounds awesome. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. It's a really I, fantastic book. I am stoked and I cannot wait to read that. And I love the fact that we are sub whales and dolphins i feel like we are anyway oh yeah no, no question no question i, I love I would uh, trade places with the dolphin in a second not there's i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be you know a dog or, or a bird necessarily but i would trade places with the dolphin yeah well i'm speaking uh, i didn't bring this up earlier but uh there is a there is a slight buddhist feel to the to the ship of theseus question because it, in some ways it is, it's almost like an unanswerable question, like something you might, that a, that a Buddhist monk might just mm -hmm. meditate on and be like, well, this is, you know, this question is so unanswerable to my perception of reality that it will help me. I, I think that's a lot, the purpose of a lot of those questions that they have is think about this for until you enlighten yourself by no longer caring or whatever the, uh, I think there's a lot of connections between all the great schools of philosophy. I mean, it, people have been, 
trying to think about what are the best ways we should live? How should we conduct ourselves during our brief time on this planet, you know, for thousands of years? And, and uh, a lot of these schools have come to relatively similar conclusions. And I would like to bring, <laughs> before, before we move back to Mickey Seven, uh, this just dawned on me while you were, would, when we brought up the whales and dolphins thing, uh, other great moments in sci-fi uh, to shout out whales and dolphins, uh, Star Trek, uh, when when they have to get, when when Captain Kirk and Spock have to go back in time to old Earth mm-hmm. because the blue whale is the is actually the highest intelligent species on planet Earth humans just don't know it right <laughs> and then right. of course the great Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when they're going to build an interstellar highway and demolish Earth the only animals on planet Earth that are aware of this and leave are the dolphins. <laughs> so long and thanks for all the fish Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so man there's just mounting evidence all around us whales and dolphins are the superior uh animals around here we should treat them with a lot more respect <laughs> I mean, we're, we're very lucky they don't have thumbs I, I think if i think if they ever develop thumbs it's pretty much it uh, that's it for us monkeys i think, I think yeah. we're pretty done at that point well that's the incredible thing is, you know they live in a world where they have no need for it so mm-hmm they live. Uh, I I like to think that dolphins live blissful lives. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a serious strain of thought in evolutionary biology that the reason we are the way we are, the reason we've got guns and cars and houses, is because we were such crappy animals. We were yeah. just really bad at <laughs> yeah. being. Animals. And you know, it's it's not that we're so much more intelligent than everybody else. I don't think there's any reason to believe we're more intelligent than an elephant. An elephant has a bigger brain than we do. They clearly yeah. have complex social structures. They communicate with each other. They don't need to invent a spear, yeah, because they've got two of them sitting on the front of their face. They yeah. never needed to invent any of these things because they absolutely dominate their ecosystem by themselves. And we didn't. We're not strong we're not fast we don't have big teeth we don't you know the only thing we've got is a rotating shoulder that allows us to throw stuff yeah you know my, my daughter <laughs> refers to humans as chuck monkeys which I, I think is a like that's basically we were an ape that learned how to throw stuff and that's yeah. how not work and we had to do that because otherwise we'd be extinct because we just were not good at being a regular animal no that that's that is such an awesome theory because you're, you're right we're not fast enough we're not strong enough where we, if it's too cold, we die. If it's too hot, we die. <laughs> like, it's like we, yep. we had to make tools. And so many of these other species that could just as easily, easily as have outperformed us just didn't need to because they were better designed animals. <laughs> yeah, why bother? Um, so back to Mickey Seven. Mickey, uh, Mickey Seven's job is to be expendable. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to try and get into it. I was going to say, uh, can can you explain uh, what that job is and how someone qualifies to sign on to be an expendable on a human colonization uh, journey? Sure. So the the, um, the basic premise of the book and where we where we jump in uh, is that we're in the far future. Humanity has been more or less forced to spread out to the stars. Um, it's as as a, a means of survival, uh, but it turns out this is a really difficult and dangerous thing to do. You know, we were built to live on Earth. We're not built to live on these other places. And trying to colonize a hostile planet is is an incredibly dangerous thing. Traveling through interstellar space is an incredibly dangerous thing. And so there's need for people essentially to do suicide missions, um, yeah. to do things which are 
somewhere between hazardous and absolutely suicidal. And so because they've developed this technology that allows the reproduction of a human body and also the recording and reproduction of a human mind, they produce a sort of underclass of people who are, who are expendables, who have to do these suicidal jobs. And then if they die, they just create a new one. Uh, they pop a new one out of the tank and it's no harm, no foul. And so no one feels bad about sending this person off to their death because look, he's fine. He, we, we just got a new one out of the tank and he's a okay. Yeah. Um, and Mickey is someone who has or, ordinarily this, this job is done by convicted criminals and things like that. Um, Mickey is an actual volunteer. Uh, he, he signs on voluntarily for reasons that, you know, I don't want to spoil anything that become apparent <laughs> in the first few chapters of the book, um, why he was more or less forced into this as well. Um, he, he figured he's figured out by the first chapter of the book that this was not his smartest choice. This was not a, a probably a great idea. He's already died six times at this point. Uh, and it's, it's not been, it's not been a good time, but this is a job that you literally can never leave. You, you can't even die to get out of it. So he's, yeah. you know, at this point he's stuck and that's, that's really the dilemma he faces. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. He can't even die to get out of the job and the jobs are uh, things like, for instance, you know, they have a fusion reactor. You, and oftentimes it's easier to send a human being in there and let the human being die than to send a drone because the drone is going to get damaged uh, on a long, you know, extended space flight colonization mission. You've got limited materials, so you can't just keep burning up your drones or robots, you know, robotics to do these kind of things. And of course, like uh, as you know, most people would obviously think that when you land on a brand new planet, one of the first things, one of the first forms of life you're going to encounter, if it's an, if, a, if it's a, a habitable planet, is bacteria or viruses. And so, your expendable is going to be the first person that you do. You send them out and expose them to the bacteria and viruses so that you can develop your vaccines. So, I mean, it is yep. it does seem like a a crucial job. Like you kind of have to have an expendable. Ethically, it might seem like you shouldn't. <laughs> right. I mean, and that that becomes that becomes the question. So yes, practically it's super, super helpful. Ethically, um, you know, without this technology to recreate someone, obviously it would be abhorrent to, you know, bring along, for instance, a a, a pen full of prisoners that you would then sacrifice one by one. Um, but because they're able to to recreate this person, they're able to trick themselves, the other colonists are able to trick themselves into thinking that. It's okay what, what they're doing to this guy. Um, it's clear to Mickey that it's not okay at this point, but there's nothing he can do about it. So to, to swing it back around and tie the ship of Theseus back into this, uh, kind of where I was going with that is the ship of Theseus comes up because in Mickey one's training. So this is the very first Mickey. He's the one that signs up for it. Mickey seven is the guy we get to know because Mickey has died six times by the time we're on this uh, pretty far into this mission. And like you were you were saying earlier uh, when you were describing and explaining to me how the human body replaces most of its cells every seven years or so. Uh, so what's the difference? You know, it's uh, it's like the people that are training him uh, when he goes through it, like when Mickey one's going through his training and they're like, here's why it's this way. Here's why you should think about it in a positive outlook. Your cells are being replaced every seven years or so. What's the difference if you re replace all your cells at once or over the course of several years? It's happening either way. Uh, just early on in this conversation, you had me pretty convinced that that is 
pretty much the case, especially with the uh, the brain scan, where when you think of yourself from 15 years ago, you think of a different person. Mm-hmm. So I'm even I'm leaning even more in this direction now, which is and like I said, we had already discussed this. They have the tech to upload and download what is virtually his mind. It's all of his memories and experiences. So the question is, does Mickey not have at least a form of immortality? Yeah, I, I, and he he describes it as a shitty form of immortality, which I think is a pretty accurate way to describe it. Um, you know, they 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 say a uh, coward dies a thousand deaths and a brave man dies but once, right? Um, Mickey has to die over and over again, and it's not fun, and he has to remember it. He has to experience those deaths. Yeah, you know, but most of us only have to experience that once. Uh, he he has to experience it over and over again, and he's repeatedly traumatized by that. And again, there is this question: um, Is he really just dying? And is the next him that comes out of the tank just a completely different person? Um, you know, you're you're right about cells being replaced. But the question is: Is what we feel is our, is is our seat of consciousness really? like this collection of cells inside of our skull. Yeah. Or is it, is it as I tend to believe it's actually this sort of, like I said, this standing electrical waves that are bouncing back and forth through your skull. That's, you know, the, the, that, that sort of, um, more comparison to like an ocean wave, right? So an ocean wave is a distinctive thing, but each moment of the wave is made up of different sort of molecules of water. Yeah. Right. The wave is its own phenomenon. And in the same way, I think our, our brainwaves, our, our personality, our thoughts, that's an, uh, a phenomenon which is separate from the physical matter that comprises the brain. And I guess uh, it's, it's fair to bring up because a, a lot of people will think this way. Uh, you, you create a, a religious uh, group in the books. Uh, the, the captain of the ship, or uh, I guess he's not the captain of the ship. He's, but he's the he's the boss. He's the big boss of he's the ground commander. Ground commander, uh, Marshall. He's a natalist, and natalists believe that if you are not born out of a human womb, then you do not have a soul. And so his belief is that every uh, new iteration of Mickey does not have a soul because he's a clone. Right. I I can see that you have that maybe we we have similar views on bureaucrats and their value to society uh but does he have a point about this do you think at all or is that just kind of meant to show that he's a very narrow-minded guy um does he have a point again that you're getting into some pretty deep philosophy at that point yeah Um, (laughs) so i mean i think you could make a point that what they are doing with expendables is on some level, evil. You're you're exploiting vulnerable people yeah. to basically do. You, you, you notice. I don't know if you did notice this. Everybody else on this expedition is from the upper 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 class of society, right? Yeah. They are the elite of the elite of the elite, except Mickey. Yeah, Mickey is the one sort of average middle class person who's on this, and he's the one who has to do all all the dirty jobs, all the hard jobs, all the painful jobs. He has to do all the suffering. He's like the Judas goat for this entire colony. Um, and you can certainly make a very strong argument that that's, I mean, that's evil. That's evil what they're doing to him. Um, yeah. And so the natalist perspective that it is that this is evil. Now they sort of 
you know, Marshall displaces his disgust with this process onto Mickey, who's really the victim here, who, yeah. in my opinion, shouldn't be, um, you know, shouldn't be receiving the opprobrium for it. Um, but I think Marshall does have a point that the whole the whole process of using expendables is 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 an evil one. It's funny uh, that you should say that we were getting into, into very deep philosophy, because I feel like from the very beginning of this, we were in, in into the deep end of philosophy, far <laughs> past my capability of holding up my end of the conversation. And I've really just been kind of like doggy paddling here, trying to hang on and, you know, hang out with you and listen <laughs> to what you have to say. But I do have something. And I don't know if this if this is just maybe. You know what? I'm going to call it a, a philosophical belief of mine. Uh, and I think it applies to this. Like you just said, Mickey is the only person here who's not in the highest classes of society in this in this colonization society. He's the only like middle class regular dude. He does the worst jobs. He gets the shittiest jobs. It's and he's treated horribly. And I feel like this is a thing that's we have. This is in our society where. And I have believed this for so long. I feel I feel like the people that have to do the worst jobs, you know, like the most disgusting, terrible things that nobody else wants to do. Those are the people that should be paid the highest, <laughs> you know, and and someone yeah, like Mar- very fair points. someone like Marshall. I, you know, there's so many different ways because he he is military, I guess, in nature. But I mean, you could also you can take like take what he represents and put him a lot of different ways. You could say, oh a military commander or a CEO or, you know, any kind of, the thing is like his job is one of the most worthless and he does the least of any of the colonists and probably uh, enjoys the highest level of comfort and luxury. So. (laughs) Yeah. um, It it certainly has been noted by more than one reviewer that this book is um, a not super subtle critique of current American capitalism. Um, I, I I think that's a fair point, oh, and I think that's obviously that's part of the reason that um, Director Bong became interested in the project because that's something that's always been. An, I mean, if you you know if you watch Parasite, that's that's the entire theme of that movie. If if you watch Snowpiercer or or, or Okja, some of his other films. Um, that kind of critique is something that he he is very interested in. And when we had our conversation, it became clear that we were really the two of us were on the same page with 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 a lot of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I, in so many ways, Snowpiercer, it just seems like it's the inevitable outcome of capitalism. It's like if you push it long yeah. enough, that's what you have. You have a dead planet, mass extinction and what's left of a class like or caste society more. <laughs> I mean, capitalism in an unfettered state inevitably leads to um, a smaller and smaller and smaller coterie of people controlling a larger and larger portion of resources. That, I mean, that's that's been demonstrated over and over and over again. Um, I think with proper controls, it can be a useful system, but you know, we, we, we've been getting away from those proper controls for the last 40 years or so in, in some fairly alarming ways, in my opinion. So I'm happy to say we made it through the insanely dense uh, philosophical part of this. And I, if, if you wouldn't mind, man, I'd like to ask, just ask you a couple of questions about uh, just world building and, sure. and just some of the stuff in the book that I love. And, and I'm just curious about uh, why it's what you chose. Uh, one of the things it's, 
it's not a major part of the book because it's on a different colony on a different planet, but it popped into my mind because we were talking about dolphins and whales. So I was just thinking about sea creatures. You have one planet. This, uh, so these, these human colonies do not find many other intelligent life, you know, whatever that may be, however you, you might want to define that. Uh, but one planet has an ar- arboreal encephalopod like is that yeah. am i saying this correctly it's like yeah. squids that live squids. in trees yeah tree squids tree squids and the tree squids so they're they're intelligent they're you know they're i guess they're as intelligent as people basically a similar thing they have no interest in industry or building tools nor do they have any interest it seems like in uh communicating with humans so <laughs> was that uh did you just kind of base that on the fact that just that squids are just smart animals um, yeah, I mean, they, 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 there is a, a lot of speculation in terms of the intelligence of cephalopods on, on earth. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to measure because they're so alien to us. Yeah. They're you know, like the, the way that an octopus brain is organized. They actually have sort of separate little brains in each of their arms that control their arms. And then the one big brain that basically is engaged in a continuous communication with all of the eight smaller brains um, and how that comes together in terms of consciousness. It's fairly clear just observing them that they're very clever, very smart. Um, you know, the way that they solve, they're able to solve puzzles, the way that it's impossible to keep them trapped in a tank. They can, they, you know, they're constantly escaping and getting out and doing things. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that they're very, very smart. And I was just sort of wondering like, how would that translate to more of a land dwelling creature? Um, yeah. And how would a creature like that, that was able to develop more of a coherent civilization, look at something like us. And my feeling was they probably would, it would be sort of a mix of disgust and horror. (laughs) And they probably would would want absolutely nothing to do with us. And that's each of those stories that I put in there about other colonies is meant to illustrate something that's going on on Niflheim at that time, obviously. I mean, that's, that's a reason that I, that I put them in there. Yeah. Um, and, and also to give you some background so that you understand a little bit more the the world that these these colonists are coming from. Um, but in in that one, yeah, I was I was trying to illustrate the fact that it is possible to coexist. But the only way that two species like us can coexist is if they both don't have reason to be afraid. Because yeah. it's you know, hatred is hatred is an outgrowth outgrowth of fear. Um, and so if, if you're afraid of the other, it, that's going to turn to anger and that's going to turn to violence. Um, and the only way to avoid that is to not, is to not have to, to, to take fear out of the question. Yeah. I, it, it's a, uh, it's a huge leap to think that once humans have, uh, interstellar travel that we will have evolved. I mean, we, you know, we can't stop killing each other. So what's the possibility we wouldn't kill every single species we come into contact with that we can. And I think you added one species, another intelligent species in, and the problem there was that it was uh, the most delicious animal on the planet. So, yeah. so the colonists just eat the the, the other uh, like in other civilization essentially. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah, don't want that, that was also not not a super <laughs> subtle commentary, maybe. But... No, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to go off on uh, my own tangents on what I feel about factory farming or the cruelty to animals that. We show, but I mean, we take sentient animals and torture them and put them through terrifying experiences just to extract their meat. So 
Seems like something we'd we'd do. You you said you haven't seen Okja, right? No, I have not. You should watch Okja. Oh, that is exactly what Okja (laughs) is about. This uh, this conversation has already got me like a whole new list of things, like things to read, things to watch. Uh, And I want I want to very delicately walk the line right now because I because I know that it I could very easily spoil some very important stuff uh, that happens in the sequel to Mickey Seven, so I'm not going to do that. But there are some other best thing to do is just skip one species entirely but there's one that i don't need to skip and that is um they so the colonists call them creepers uh some somewhat like an insect colony in a way uh, but they also use biotech they use uh they like have mechanized bodies it's uh, it's kind of complex but i was kind of curious it's like is your inspiration for that like the way something you know like a termite hive or a beehive something like, like that might operate it has a, pr- a prime intelligence yeah I, I mean i i wanted to um when i think about alien species i try not to it's it's really tempting as a science fiction author to just be like okay here's spiders in space here's yeah. you know <laughs> here's uh here's tigers that are like people in space um i, I don't want to do that so I, I tried to make them their own thing. They're not, they're not really like insects. They're not really like anything on earth because they're not of earth. They're not of our entire biological lineage. They're, they're hundred percent their own thing. Um, they have some physical resemblance maybe to, uh, to insects, uh, yeah. in some ways. Um, but in other ways, really not. And, and they are, um, as we learn in any matter blues they are a hybrid biological mechanical species um so they 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 have sort of a soft organic chunk and then that lives inside of a hard mechanical shell uh you use the term uh ancillary a lot am i saying that right ancillary yeah and so uh what it is is an individual of this species if uh if a human is to kill one of them the species doesn't take that as a murder or a killing of one of their species. It's more as like you had maybe taken a sample of them as a whole. Whereas humans, if when, when they kill a human, they think they're doing the same thing. They think they're just sampling an ancillary. Is that, uh, can you kind of maybe expound on what that means? Cause I, it is kind of hard to explain. Yeah. One of the, one of the fun things that you can do with science fiction is look at how two different cultures with completely different worldviews, clash and you know we 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 see that play out when different human cultures meet uh and we see how badly that can go sometimes and so and and we humans like there's less genetic diversity among us than there is in one tribe of monkeys on a hillside you know we're we're all basically the exact same creature to yeah. to the 99% accuracy so how how much more of a clash of culture and how much more misunderstanding can come into play when we're dealing with something that comes from a completely different biological lineage uh, and so yeah, the, the, the way that the Creepers society is structured, um, they don't really have a concept of valuable individual life. They, they, they have individual intelligence. They're not like ants that are just sort of little mechanical things, but they value the life of the collective, not the life of the individual. And they don't understand that humans don't think that way in the same way humans don't understand the way they think either. Um, and that's what leads to a lot of the conflict because they're both doing things that seem reasonable and innocent to them, but yeah. each one's actions to the other seem 
horrifying and murderous. Yeah. And so that's, and, and so that misunderstanding is one of the things that they have to overcome to avoid, to avoid a Holocaust, basically. That's the thing is, you know, first contact could literally be something that we would not have the ability to comprehend what, what we have oh, contacted. Absolutely. So this, I have one more question about Mickey seven and it might be hopeful thinking, uh, but you, so one of my favorite things in Mickey seven is that he is a historian of failed human colonization beachheads. And it's one of my favorite parts uh, in the book is when he'll just describe to you a beachhead that failed. And, you know, you would assume that I, I don't know what percentage you said, maybe 50% fail. I don't know. I don't remember the number in the book, but that sounds about right. And uh, what are the chances that you might come out with a compendium of failed beachheads in the Mickey seven universe? <laughs> <laughs> that is uh that's an interesting point because um, I, I would totally read an entire book of failed beachheads they're because they're so fascinating even though it's i mean it is depressing in nature that's uh that's something my publisher would have to be interested in. i would be very happy to write something like that if my publisher was interested in in, in publishing it so maybe I, i've 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 got a call with uh with my editor next week maybe i'll bring that up i'll, I'll see what he thinks just, just something to think about <laughs> yeah no that's that's, that's not, a, not a bad idea uh edward i got i got one thing i gotta tell you man we are dangerously close to the lightning round uh the way this podcast works at the end of every interview we have a lightning round where i ask you a bunch of questions super fast no time to think you just answer as quickly as possible uh the way things have been going for the past couple of months i no longer even write these lightning rounds uh co-producer colleen writes them so when i get them she just leaves it on my desk i don't look at it so i have no idea what i'm going to read you at the exact same time so it's a surprise to both of us they, they, they and they come in many forms uh oh today you've gotten a mad lib <laughs> so i'm just going to say noun verb adverb whatever uh okay let's just jump into this this is called Master and Commander 2. This time it's personal. Okay. A Mad Lib story by co-producer Colleen and co-written by Edward Ashton. Oh, shit. I need a pen for this. Okay. <clears throat> Main character's name. Doug. All right. I'm in it. Adjective. Uh, corpulent. Corpulent. I have a feeling this is going to be fantastic. Another adjective, please. Weasley. This is <laughs> uh, Main character's name again. That's me. Doug. Or another man named Doug. It doesn't have to be. If this sucks, it's not me. All right, verb. Squeeze. You know, I love having literary people do a Mad Lib. <clears throat> Celebrity. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Top of mind. Body part. Foot. That's Doug again right here. And part of a ship. Sailing ship. Keel. Name of store. Target. Plural noun. Goats. And one more plural, plural noun, please. Shoes. Oh, my God, co-producer Colleen. Don't worry. We'll, we'll go through this very quickly. <laughs> uh, Doug, that's me. Part of a ship. Rudder. Store name. Walmart. Number. Pie. Oh, I don't know how to write that anymore. Uh, that's close enough. I'll know what that means. <laughs> plural nouns. Uh, fans. Doug again. Famous person. Uh, Hillary Clinton. And supernatural creature. Mothman. Do you know that I actually spent six weeks living in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where the Mothman is from? It was pretty cool. I uh, West Virginia. I'm a big fan of the Mothman. Oh, cool. Have you been to Point Pleasant and seen the statue I, and all that? I have, yes. 
cool uh yeah some of the some of the locals took me to uh where he supposedly dwells it was very very cool mm-hmm. number seven and Doug, again i do a lot of shit in this motion oh emotion i'm sorry i was gonna say that, yeah, that made no sense motion like <laughs> emotion fury fury. fury and one more emotion please uh fear <laughs> i promise we are almost to the end of this uh verb ending in ing uh breaking just consider this like a a writing exercise to help you with your verb nouns oh no, absolutely i'm, I'm sure you, <laughs> we, we got my next book coming out right here topic topic uh, uh, that's a tough one. It is um, tough. One. Music. All right. Yeah. Sure. Music a topic? I guess that could be a topic. Music is absolutely a topic. Sure. Uh, talk show, or like name of a talk show. Sally Jesse Raphael. Oh, Sally. Is she still kicking? I don't know. I remember I used to watch that with my grandma when I was a kid. She had big glasses, right? She had big glasses. Uh, noun. Noun. Axe. And another noun? Uh, stapler. Place. Point Pleasant. Point Pleasant, West Virginia, home of the Mothman. Oh, shit, we're done. Hell yeah. All right, Edward, would you like to know the story that we just wrote together? I'm, I'm dying. I'm absolutely dying. <laughs> uh, once again, this is called Master and Commander 2. This time it's personal. A Mad Lib story by co-producer Colleen, co-written by Edward Ashton. A long, long time ago, there lived a man named Doug. He was known across the land for being very corpulent. And Weasley. God damn it. It's not me then. Doug had a ship that was very important to him because he used it every day to squeeze. Because of this, he named his ship Brad Pitt's Foot. One day, Doug was cleaning his ship and noticed a big crack in the keel. He went to Target and bought goats and shoes and quickly made the repair. A week later, Doug noticed the rudder was also damaged. So this time he went to Walmart and bought pie fans to fix his beloved ship over the next month doug had to make even more repairs to his ship so many that he thought he might be getting pranked by hillary clinton or haunted by a mothman eventually he had to replace every single part of his ship which was not only emotionally draining but also cost him about seven dollars doug also fell into a deep depression feeling fury and fear every day He began questioning his reality and the meaning of all human existence on Earth. He stopped breaking. Wait, he stopped breaking and started writing long manifestos about music. Every day he looked himself in the mirror and asked, is my ship even the same ship anymore? What does it all mean? Then one day while watching Sally Jeffrey Raphael, he realized the true meaning of life was not possessions like ships, but really the pursuit of axe and stapler. And the friends you make along the way. He sold his ship and moved to Point Pleasant and lived happily ever after. The end. Again, that 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 sounds like a novel written by Chat GPT. I like it. <laughs> All right. Edward, I only have uh, one last question for you, and it really is just where can people find your amazing books? Uh, I know you've written a lot of short fiction. You've got so much out there. Um, and if uh, people can follow you somewhere, all that stuff, all the good stuff. Um if you want to follow me on, on Twitter, I'm at, uh, at, at, at Ashton writing, um, edwardashton.com is my website. Uh, you can find links to all my books, all my short stories there. Um, a lot of the short stories are available free on the web. If you're just looking for something fun to read, um, 
and obviously, you know, you can get my books anywhere that you buy books, your bookstore, your local library, um, and indie bookstore is always great. Um, so, you know, and any, any place that you would ordinarily find that sort of thing. Hell yeah. Hey guys, remember read Mickey seven before the movie comes out, because oftentimes if you watch the movie first, it makes it harder for me personally. I like to like do book first movie second. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the cool kids all read the book first. Cool kids, read the book first, guys. You heard it here first. Uh, Edward, I cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast today. And I hope you have a fantastic weekend, man. Thanks, you too. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.